Church, open your Bibles this morning. We are going to be in the book of Acts and chapter 19. Well, I had a little chance this week to go uh, down memory lane and remember a significant life passage for my kids, specifically in this case, actually for my son. And I remembered the time that we went on college campus visits. Some of you have done that with your children, and you remember the uh, great moments that that was. You were thinking about all that was on the horizon for your kids and their future, and could they see themselves on that college campus? Some of you, that is on the horizon. You're thinking about that. In fact, I know some families here that are in the midst of that right now. You're doing that with some of your children. Well, John and I were in Southern California. We visited a couple of schools there. At that time, he was really interested in film. And we went to schools that we thought had good film programs. And one of the campuses that we went to was Chapman University. Um, I'm going to say something about Chapman. If you went to Chapman, I have no uh, disregard for the school. But there's something that happened on that campus that we found very interesting. We took the typical campus tour at all of these schools that we went to. And when we were on the tour, they said, this is our chapel. And so we said, oh, man, let's go in and check out the chapel. And so we went in and we took the the chapel in. And I'm just here to tell you, it was the weirdest chapel I've ever seen. It was kind of a a drab color, although it had some light. So it was in some colored light. Don't think stained glass because it wasn't that. It was just like some colored light that was cut into the wall. So it was kind of pouring in. It had a platform there, some rows and chairs. And then it had what appeared to me to be a kind of an altar. Uh, you know, it was kind of a, a bench or, a, or a, a ledge, as it were, that was kind of on the stage. And we found out that this was a chapel to all gods and all religions. Now, again, I kind of bring that up because I'm like, well, this is a Disciples of Christ school. They had a religious background some, at some point. And so I found it rather odd that they had gone progressive, and that now they have a chapel that's dedicated to every God. And, you know, I was like, wow, John and I just kind of walked away from that, like, I don't know how we feel about this. It's probably not the school where you really want to go. And he did, did decide, although they had a great film program at the time, that that, that that wouldn't be the place where he wanted to go. Well, in a word, that is America today. All gods are equal. Religion is fuzzy I would say that day at the school there at the chapel it was fuzzy it's like what do you even mean and you know how have you arrived at this space and that is kind of uh, America today let's create an altar for every God and you have to contrast that with the early church and the passage we're going to read in just a moment they had a very specific message and a very specific faith it was not You know, whoever you want God to be, just go ahead and follow him. And that was not their message at all. Their message was very, very pointed. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come to go and give his life and die and rise again. Jesus has come to forgive us and lead us into the life we could never provide for ourselves. That was the very specific message that the church had. And it wasn't some, again, feel-good message. Uh, It would ultimately be that, but for many people, that's not what they necessarily wanted to hear. It was a specific message, and that's our message. That's our message to share. It's our message to hope for. And it's a message that requires a response to those that hear it. Consider that, or compare that again to religious pluralism, which is kind of the lay of the land today for where we are. 
and that we're a a potpourri of all different kinds of religions and backgrounds that uh, exist in our culture today. And I'm not trying to argue that 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 shouldn't be happening. What I'm trying to say is that's the environment we're in, and that's the environment of the early church. The environment of the early church was a place where, again, there were all of these different religions and Greek mythology uh, cults that were followed. There was folk religions. There was, of course, Judaism. And all of those were happening. And the church, well, it thrived in that environment. And I think the church does thrive in an environment in which we can compare and contrast, in which we can have discussion, in which we can have debate. And that's a good environment for the church to be in. In fact, I remember... Years ago, I I don't see this class offered anymore, but college campuses, especially junior college campuses, offered a class called comparative religion. You remember when that used to be kind of in vogue? Uh, Comparative religion classes were were very common. And I don't see that really offered anymore. I think that would be too edgy, actually, for some people. And so again, rigorous debate is not what is happening anymore. An idea in which we can actually have a discussion and perhaps even disagree, that's not happening anymore. So what has replaced this environment of rigorous debate? Well, here's what's replaced it. Total acceptance of all beliefs, no evaluation, and no comment. Universalism is the belief that all religions are basically the same and that everybody ultimately kind of gets into heaven or afterlife, whatever they conceive that to be. And that is what is the lay of the land today. So to have a conversation with somebody and to say, you know, I'm not really sure that's what God is like, or I'm not sure that's what salvation really is. I'm not sure that's really what the Bible says. You can't say that. That is off limits. That is considered out of bounds. And so we are not having those kinds of discussions. In today's passage, we're going to find out something that I want you to hear today. We're going to find out that the gospel always brings tension. It brings tension to any society that it comes into. It brings challenges, it pokes, it prods, it upends beliefs that we've previously held. And I'm sharing this with you today because... In the next number of weeks, starting next week, we're going to have four weeks in which I talk about the next iteration of missions at CCF. Some brand new paths that we're trying to forge. Some places where we're trying to go where we haven't been in the past. Some similar paths, but some new places too. And I'm bringing this out to you because if we don't have the ideal that we actually want to share the gospel with others, that we want Jesus' message to go to all the world, if we're afraid somehow of making that message known, if we are going to move more towards comfort than we are actually sharing the gospel, then everything we're going to say over the next four weeks is not going to make a hill of beans difference because, again, we are going to be withdrawn people. We have to understand that there was a tension that came with the gospel, and we have to understand that that's what happens anywhere that the gospel goes. In order to help you understand this tension that was felt with the gospel going out, I'm turning today to the book of Acts. It's Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, he's obviously making his way around to different cities. And the city where he goes is Ephesus. It's a city in which it's a, it's a, a, a big city. It's a glowing city. And it's a, a city in which I want you to understand the religious climate of that city. They had cobblestone streets. They had beautiful buildings. And at the very center of the city was a temple to the goddess Artemis. 
Uh, she was a, 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 a shrine that was held there in her honor, and people went to worship uh, Artemis at that location. Uh, this is what I need for you to know. There was the worship of Artemis that was happening all over the world at that time. And in the Roman world, there were 33 shrines that were dedicated to Artemis. But I want you to put in your heads, this was the, this was the, the big one. This, this was the main campus, as it were. If you think Taj Mahal in your head, that's not too small. Taj Mahal in its quality would have been the equivalent of Artemis or the temple of Artemis that was in Ephesus in those days. I've got a photograph here for you of the ruins, one previous, the ruins of the temple of Artemis. And if you went to Ephesus today, which is in Turkey, I hope to go there one day myself, that's what you'll see that's remaining of it. And you can see those columns that are very iconic. Uh, The next picture is an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. And what is really uh, typical, again, of what's happening here is it's this humongous building. In fact, I went and did the calculations this week, and that building was about the size of Edmonds Woodway Stadium. So, again, just trying to get something in your head that says, like, how big is this? That's about how big it is. Edmonds Woodway Stadium. Imagine coming up to, again, a Metroplex that large. There's 127 columns that are on the outside of that. There's gold filigree that's in many of those columns and and many of those portions of it. It's got these cascading, again, marble staircases that make its way up to that. On the inside of that, it's got all of these beautiful paintings and it's built in kind of a square. So there's a courtyard in the center of it that people can go and enjoy. And here was the one piece of really a, a big artifact that was in the temple. It, it was thought that there was a stone that had fallen out of heaven that was the symbol of Artemis. And that stone was on display and it was guarded. And people went to see that stone that was in the temple of Artemis. So you get the idea. This is a very religious climate. And uh, this is what the gospel is stepping into in uh, Ephesus in those days. I'm picking up in chapter 19 and I'm picking up in verse 24. Let's find out what happens as the gospel arrives in Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And remember, the way was the name for the followers of Jesus. They were following the way because he was the way. And so again, that's a a little phrase that is used by uh, the writer of the book of Acts to indicate followers of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said... Men, you know that from this, this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned people away, tur- turned a great many people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that, made, that, that this trade of ours may come into disrepair, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. When he heard that they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, 
Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some Asiarchs, who were leaders uh, surrounding Paul, who were friends of his, sent to him and urged him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and to uh, do nothing rash. For you, know, for you have brought these men here who have, neither, uh, have nothing sacrilegious or blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Uh, but if the, you see anything in, out of order, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. When the gospel goes out in any society, it brings tension. And it did in the first time that the gospel was going out in the world, and it does still today. And for most of us, as Americans especially, I think we are very reluctant for religious tension to exist. In fact, there was a study commissioned by the Barna Group, and they found out that half of all Americans have no form of conversation about religious matters with anybody else. 40% also would say they would never even have a conversation with their immediate family about religious matters. When you go even a step deeper, Protestant Christians, only 10% are willing to have a conversation in which they try to persuade somebody else to hold a different view. 70% said, anytime I enter into a religious conversation, then I would really seek to understand a person's beliefs and agree to disagree if we had to. Again, one out of six would say, I wouldn't even discuss the matter altogether. And maybe even as a result of COVID, this was pre-COVID, those numbers have gotten even higher. So I think in, in general, we are very reluctant. We're uncomfortable to enter into any situation in which there might be a hint of tension. I can tell you this, I very remember clearly the time that I have felt the most religious tension in all of my life. And it was oh, about eight years ago when we took a group to Jerusalem and we went to the Temple Mount area. And I want to show you a little bit about the Temple Mount area and what was happening there. This is an aerial picture of Jerusalem. And this right here is the Temple Mount area. You can see it's lifted up a little bit higher than everything surrounding it. You can see this wall right here in which the, everything is just kind of up on a little plateau. Here is the spot right here where it's called the Dome of the Rock. And uh, that was the spot where the temple used to exist that was the, the Jewish temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans and everything was just pushed off to the edge and it left a blank slate. 
around 700 AD, Muslims came to this spot. They took over control of the city and they built the Dome of the Rock right there and they also built Al-Aqsa Mosque right there. This spot is a sacred spot for Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And so there's a lot of tension around that spot. Uh, we entered the spot right over here and you can see there is a little, uh, it's a walkway, a wooden walkway that comes right off of this space right here. If, where my pointer is right here, that's called the Western Wall. And Jews come up to this spot right here and pray against that wall right there. But if you go on a Temple Mount, you have to enter in on that little walkway right there. I got the next picture and it shows you what that walkway looks like. You can see it here. And then one more picture and you can see actually the entry into that wooden walkway. All right. We made our way through all of the, um, the security and they check you out and make sure that you, you know, are authorized to come. They also make sure that you do not have a Bible with you and that you also have nothing that's a cross or nothing religious. You have to leave all of that off and you can't come up. You, there's no way you could come up, for instance, with a musical instrument because you're not allowed to sing there or pray as a Christian. And so again, there's all these rules and you're kind of gathering in all those rules and you're getting ready to make your way through that little wooden walkway. I happen to notice that behind our group was another gentleman and, and, and looked like to be his wife and I could tell that he was Orthodox. He's an Orthodox Jew because he had the curls that were coming down the side of his face right here. And, you know, I just remembered thinking, oh, all right, there's somebody else that's going on Temple Mount with us. All right, that's cool. And we made our way through that wooden walkway and got onto the other side of that. And immediately, this woman who was in Arab dress came up holding a Quran and she began screaming at the man. I mean, screaming. And we're, we're like, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're kind of taken aback and we kind of move away. A lot of heat there. And I'm telling you, for the rest of the time we were there, the screaming just continued on and on and on. And we didn't even kind of know what to make of that. I mean, I don't know what was threatening her about that guy or what she thought he was there to do. I really couldn't make any sense of that. But let me tell you, there was tension that day on Temple Mount. Religious tension. We don't necessarily look for it, but it exists in the world. And any time the gospel goes out, there is a level of tension that is felt. The gospel enters the city of Ephesus and it brings tension. It brings threat. There's individuals who see change on the horizon. They're not sure they want to have that change. And so they're moving to protect the things that are sacred to them. In today's passage, we're going to learn about the tension and how it happened in the city that day. When a specific faith was shared, uh, not as something vague, but a specific faith about Jesus, it brought tension as it went out, and we, they were calling people to trust and rely upon Jesus, and no longer to trust upon the gods that they previously had trusted. In today's passage, I want to show you three tensions that come as a result of the gospel Three tensions that were felt by three different groups of people that day. I want to cover with you today Demetrius, the silversmith uh, uh, artisan, and what threat he felt. I want to share with you about the crowd and what threat they felt. And I want to share with you about the town keeper, or the guy who is the city clerk, and the tension that he felt, and we're going to learn from them. The first character is Demetrius, and Demetrius, I want to argue, has a pocketbook tension. Demetrius is the head of the silversmith guild. He not only makes these small images of Artemis, 
but he actually runs the guild that is all of the artisans in the area, all the trinkets that they make, all the hats, all the mugs, everything that they've got going on there for the worship of Artemis. I mean, he's over that guild. Artemis was the goddess of wild animals, of the hunt, of vegetation, and of childbirth. And as goddess of wild nature, she was thought to dance in the uh, marshes and in the uh, forests. And she embodied for a sportsman wild animals. She not only hunted wild animals, but she protected wild animals. I have a photo here of the statue of Artemis. And the statue, again, at the very bottom has panels of, of animals that she is obviously uh, over. It's also got some fruit that's down there. I'm not sure you can quite make that out. But again, she's over all the plant life. And you'll notice that she also around her midsection there has what appears to be just a, a whole group of breasts. And you might think, well, that seems kind of odd and seems overly sexual. Don't think of it that way because that's not the way that it was intended what was intended here is prosperity. She was a prosperity goddess, a goddess of productivity, a goddess of fertility. And so you would go and make a offering to her because you wanted your fields and you wanted your animals to prosper. And so again, that's what she was calling people to do was to come and give their devotion for their prosperity. And that's what she was all about. It's very likely that Demetrius was making little figurines of that, of that image right there and that's what he was selling so people could take home with them a little piece of Artemis. Demetrius gathers all the people together and he says, I'm here to talk to you about a grave situation. He says, I've looked at the numbers and it's thought that right now that's in the middle of the springtime that they're there and this is the time where a great number of festivals are held to the memory of Artemis, by the way, also known as Diana, Diana is the Roman name. Artemis is the Greek name of the same goddess. And he says, I've looked over the numbers and hey, we've got a real tail off. People are not buying as many of our goods as they once did. He says, once the church has started spreading their message, then over all of Asia, people are not coming here and they're not honoring the goddess as they have before. When you notice that Demetrius, again, even claims, he says, they're saying that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And likely, Paul was sharing that very message with individuals. Now, the thing I want you to see is that he is protecting something. And what is it that he is protecting? He is protecting his livelihood. He's protecting what he sells and what all of the artisans sell. And he says, if you're starting to pinch on our economics, then that's starting to really register with me. We'll let people just follow Jesus. But at the moment at which they begin to encroach on our territory, then I've got some things I want to say about that because money in this case matters a whole lot. When it comes to people's hearts and change, things are going to happen that are ultimately, if they change their heart allegiance, are going to have an economic repercussion. When, change, when society changes because hearts are changing, you're going to notice that things of attendance are going to change. For instance, they don't attend the temple as much as they used to. In our case, you're going to notice things like perhaps drug use changes or bar attendance changes, or there's other economic impacts that happen when the gospel really comes into a city. If Diana is losing her following... The tradespeople are very concerned about that because they're concerned about their pocketbooks. They're also concerned, they say, for the world renown of Diana. 
And they don't want her to lose her position of authority around the world. All right, that's Demetrius. And Demetrius represents a whole group of people that are concerned for their economics. Let's move on because Demetrius has joining with him a group of people. It's a crowd. And I'm going to argue that the crowd has a different interest. They have a tension that is around tradition. You remember the song, Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition, tradition. We have that very deep on the inside of us is this idea of tradition, of things that have always been. And one of the things that they really guard as part of their tradition is these galas or these big events that would be held in the honor of uh, Artemis or Diana. They were these festivals in which people would come. They had athletic contests. There was drinking. There was carousing. An eyewitness said it this way. He said, it was a festival of Artemis. And every place was full of drunken men. And the marketplace was full of men all night. And so you can imagine all of the things that were happening. And they came in order to have a good time. We might consider that maybe the equivalent of Mardi Gras in our country or spring break at Cancun is one that comes to mind. That might be the equivalent of what was going on in the city of Ephesus at that time. But people began to change allegiance. They began to say, that's not what we want to do anymore. Pleasure is not our number one pursuit anymore. It's really that we want to pursue God. We want to know God. And so the Silversmiths Guild became infuriated. They began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and the whole mob began to go with them. What they did was they began to make their way through the streets, and more and more people just began to join in, and they made their way down all the way to a, a, an amphitheater. It's a theater still in Ephesus today. This is what it looks like now. Seats 25,000 people. It would have been the spot where there would have been plays that were put on, but it was also the spot where the city council would meet in order to have public gatherings. And they gather up all these people and they pull them down to this spot and they end up having this big, again, uh, assembly. And it says some of the people, because they just kind of got caught up in the madness, they didn't even know why they were there. I mean, they were scratching their heads. Why are we even here to do this? And so again, what am I arguing of what the crowd's interest is? The crowd's interest is tradition. They want things to be as it always has been. And they want to make sure that we remain our identity as Ephesians, that we are intact as the people that we have kind of always been, that our identity surrounding us is intact and that we keep all of the traditions in place that we've always had. Let me remind you about something. Some of you are going to remember this. You remember that you used to get aspirin in a bottle, especially bare aspirin, and at the very top of it was a little wad of cotton. In fact, there's still some medications that are put out today that have that little wad of cotton at the top of that. Raise your hand if you've ever opened one of those bottles. All right, chances are good that you have. Well, can, let me tell you something. Uh, Bear started that in 1919. They started putting that in because they wanted to fill the rest of the container and they wanted to make sure as the container went in in transit that it didn't like shake and break the tablets. And so they put that in as a little filler to kind of keep everything in place. Well, they started doing some studies and realized that they didn't need that. That the, actually the pills would hold up just fine in transit and that they didn't need to do that any longer. But they were concerned because they did a few focus groups and they found out that people identified that with safety. That if you had that little wad of cotton at the top, it was considered a safer product. It meant that 
the wrong hands hadn't touched it and messed around with the pills. It meant that it might be uh, uh, potent for a longer period of time if that was in there. What they actually found out was exactly the opposite. That cotton would draw in some water and it would actually, actually degrade the aspirin. And so again, it wasn't even a good thing to have it there. They found out for a solid 25 years before they stopped it that it wasn't needed. And so why did they keep on putting it in there? Because everybody wanted it or thought they wanted it. They thought that was normal. That was tradition. And so why change anything when we know this is a product that we trust? And so Bayer did not remove that until 1999, 80, almost 80 years after they first put it in, and a solid 30 years after they knew they didn't need it anymore. What that says to all of us is that traditions continue. They're hard to ever change, hard to ever break. And when the gospel goes out to the world, many times it challenges some of those traditions. And of course, there's going to be resistance against that. And we just have to count that as that's going to happen. That's going to be one of the things that's part of sharing the message of Jesus. All right, the third character in the story today is the city clerk. And I'm going to say, tell you today that the city clerk had a status quo tension. When I say status quo, what do I mean? I mean the current situation. Status quo literally means the, the current situation or the way things are right now. He, he's akin to the people that love tradition, but he really is just saying, I just don't want change or I don't want disruption. I want things to stay where they are right now. This is the guy who's probably the least likely guy that's going to step forward and is going to save the Christians. I mean, that's really what he does. But that's the role that he has. And he steps out and he wants to tell people he has enough reputation to speak to them. He wants to tell people, I want to flatter you and then I'm going to scare you. I'm going to flatter you because I'm going to remind you, are you kidding? Man, look around. Ephesus is the center that's the crown jewel of the, the Artemis temple of all the world. We're not in any trouble. The whole world still follows Artemis just fine. So we're okay. And you're on the edge, if you're not careful, of causing a great disruption and causing a riot. And, you know, I'm really concerned about that. So let's not do anything rash. He says, these guys have not robbed our temple. They have not blasphemed Artemis. Uh, so, you know, let's... let's, let's move on, let's do other things with our time because if we're not careful, we'll have Rome that will come back in with a Roman army and they will disrupt our way of life. So he wants to keep the status quo. He wants to keep things as they are and he's interested in just maintaining order. Uh, that's probably even because his job depended upon that in some ways, but that's what he does. And can I tell you, of all of the tensions I've shared with you today, this one might be the most difficult for church people. We like predictable. We like remaining the same. And can I prepare you, in the coming weeks, we might share some things with you that, well, might cause some change. It might cause a change of the status quo. We might be sharing some things that you might consider to be rather risky. And I want you to remember that, well, it's tension oftentimes that helps us to grow. It helps us to move forward. And so the only thing that is ever not going to change is God and His Word. That's the only thing that's not going to change. Everything else will. So let me summarize. This is what we've learned today. Anytime the gospel comes into a neighborhood, it shakes things up. It causes a tension. Always. We learned from Demetrius that he has a pocketbook tension. He's worried about his livelihood. And the gospel somehow is threatening that now. We learned from the crowd that they have a traditions tension. 
They want their customs, their practices, and their identity protected. And then we learn from the city clerk that he has a status quo tension. Just don't change anything. Keep it all the way that it is. And notice that all, all those people are obviously dead and gone now, but the things that they were protecting are no more. I mean, that's a ruin now. And I, I can't remember the last time I've ever met anybody that is a worshiper of Diana or Artemis that doesn't exist anymore. And so again, they were protecting something that well, wasn't even going to last. Here's what I want you to hear today. If you hear me saying, go create tension, get in people's faces. No, you've missed me. Here's what I want you to hear. If we are faithful and we carry the message out to friends, to nations, we are going to find that there is going to be an inherent tension and we need to prepare ourselves for that. That's just inherent with the gospel going out. And in fact, it's inherent with the gospel actually taking root in people's hearts. There has to be a little struggle. There has to be something in which it's like, mm, I don't know if I believe this or I don't know if I want to do this. And that's all part of this transformation that we want to see happen within people. If comfort is our God, then we won't share the message with anybody. And so I'm asking you to pray with me as May comes around the corner now. Pray with me that our hearts would be open. Pray with me that we'd have fertile soil in our hearts. Pray that God would pour out his oil and wine on us so that we would be ready to hear what he says to us because we ultimately need to be his. We need to be willing to go wherever he sends, willing to be his with every conversation, with every lifestyle choice that we have. The gospel brings an inherent tension wherever it goes. And we need to make sure and right-size that because it was true in the early church and it will be true of us also. Let's pray. Father, this passage is a reminder to us that uh, tension is perhaps one of the vehicles that you use for heart change. If all of us never thought we needed a Savior, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't actually uh, even follow you. And we had to come to the space of you actually stopping us up short and saying, You've sinned, and I have a penalty for that. Lord, that is an abusive message to the human spirit, and it's one that we need to hear, but one that's not always easy to hear. Lord, prepare us over the next number of weeks to be ready for what you tell us as a church, and let us enter into our world expecting that there will be a level of tension around the sharing of the gospel. It's good news, but we fight against it at times. And we find out that that's typical. Thank you, Lord, for your good message to us and for rescuing us out of darkness into light. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.